This morning, we are going to complete our flyover of the last 13 chapters of the book of Ezekiel. We started two weeks ago. Excuse me. We started two weeks ago, and we looked at the promised salvation for Israel. And we saw that in chapters 36 and 37 of Ezekiel. And we saw that that promised salvation came in three, under three different headings. Number one, there was individual salvation. If we flip over, go ahead and just flip in your Bibles. Let's go to um, Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers so you will be my people and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness and I will call for the grain and multiply it and I will not bring a famine on you. I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field so that you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Israel was going to come to the place where God cleansed them from the stain of their sin. He regenerated them He removed that unresponsive heart of flesh from them, gave them a heart that was responsive to him, and then put his spirit in them. Now remember that in the Old Testament, that was a radical idea because God's spirit was not widely disseminated. It was not given to every believer as we have today, as we experience. And so they were going to have God's spirit in them. In Jeremiah, when you look at that, God said, I'm going to write my law on your hearts. You're not going to have to say each other, know the Lord, because all of you are going to know the Lord. And so you're going to have this massive turning by individuals within Israel, turning to God for repentance and faith. So you have individual salvation. You also have corporate national salvation, and this is unique to Israel. No other country on the face of the planet has this promise, and that's in Ezekiel chapter 37, and again, you remember that chapter 37 was the vision of the valley of the dry bones, and Ezekiel is commanded, preach to these bones, son of man, and tell them to rise, command the breath to come and inhabit them, and the bones connect, and there's sinews, and there's muscles, and there's flesh that comes over them, and they're standing up, and then Son of Man prophesy to the breath to enter them, and the the breath enters into them. They're standing a, a, a large, a huge army, and God tells him, this is the whole house of Israel. He is breathing life from death, into the nation so that the entire nation is his. And so you have individual salvation, you have 
corporate national salvation. And then the last half of, of chapter 37, you have the reunification of the nation. Remember that for several hundred years, there's been the northern kingdom and there's been the southern kingdom and never the twain shall meet. They've been to war against each other on several occasions over that time. They are, in, they are bitterly separated. And God says, I want you to take two sticks. I want you to write house of Judah on one. I want you to write house of Israel on the other. And you put them together in your hand and they become one because those nations are going to be again brought together and they're going to be one people, one nation. They're going to have one king and they're going to have one shepherd. Now, some would look and say, how is that even possible? The 10 tribes that went into captivity in Assyria, nobody knows where they went. They've been lost to antiquity. They've been lost in history. God knows who they are. God knows where they are. And God is going to be able to bring them back. And so you're going to have one people. So again, they are, they are redeemed and they are reunified. Now this is taking place during that seven-year period that is referred to in Daniel uh, as the 70th week of Daniel. In Jeremiah, it's referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble or the time of Jacob's distress, depending on your translation. It is a time of intense persecution and intense suffering for the people of Israel. Two-thirds of the nation will die in that seven-year period. One-third will remain, and they will be saved through that time. Then last week, we looked at chapters 38 and 39. You had the promised salvation in 36 and 37. In 38 and 39, we have a promised deliverance. And when you take chapters 38 and 39 in conjunction with Revelation 19 and 20, then you see that there are two occasions where God is going to miraculously deliver Israel from overwhelming odds from huge armies that are coming to, with a specific purpose of destroying them. The first of those events is going to be the Battle of Armageddon. That battle occurs at the end of that seven-year period in the time of the Great Tribulation. And that is where Satan's unholy trinity, the Satan, uh, composed of Satan, the beast, or the Antichrist, and the false prophet, lead a massive rebellion against God the Father, the Lord Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. They lose badly. Satan is taken captive and he is locked away in a place called the abyss for a thousand years. And while he's there, he cannot deceive the nations. He cannot influence man to further rebel against God. The beast and the false prophet are taken immediately and they are cast alive into the lake of fire. Then there's a thousand year period of time called the Millennial Kingdom. We're going to be talking about that today. And at the end of that thousand years, Satan is released for a short time. You'll find this in Revelation chapter 20. And he is able to deceive the nations again. You started the Millennial Kingdom with all believers. Those who were alive and survived the Great Tribulation still have these bodies. So they are able to marry. They are able to be given in marriage. And so they're able to have kids. All of those who were redeemed and brought into the kingdom to reign forever with Christ, we have our glorified bodies, so we aren't given in marriage. And so we don't have the ability to procreate. All the kids that are going to be born are going to be born originally from redeemed parents. And over that thousand-year period of time, there's going to be a number of people. And unfortunately, there's going to be a lot of them who, for whatever reason, choose to reject Christ as king, regardless of the benefits, regardless of what they see. And again, remember, Satan is bound. And so the sin that is still present during that time, that's just the good old depraved human heart. Nobody's got the excuse 
of being able to say, like Philip, Philip Wilson used to say, the devil made me do it. No one's going to have that excuse. And so, after that thousand-year period, you have a final uprising. It is second battle. It's also the last one. It is the last hurrah for Satan. That one doesn't go any better than the first one. He is crushed, and he is captured. He is thrown alive into the lake of fire. And then the unredeemed from all of history are raised, and they will stand before the great, great white throne of judgment, and there's going to be books brought out. You'll find this in Revelation 20. There's going to be books. Those are the books of their deeds. And then there is a book. And this single book, that's the book of life. If your name's not written in the book of life, you're condemned. The, the degree of your suffering for eternity comes out of the record of your deeds that are all recorded. So there's plenty of indisputable proof. And then those whose names are not written in the book of life go to the lake of fire with Satan and the beast and the false prophet to be tortured forever in agony and anguish. And when you talk about fire and brimstone of the lake of fire, I don't know if you're familiar with brimstone. Probably the, the closest, closest example that we would have to brimstone would be napalm, jellied gasoline. That is the idea of brimstone. It sticks to you and burns. Those redeemed are saved from that. So today, we're going to look at this kingdom that exists. It's a promised kingdom, and it's not just promised in Ezekiel. It is promised through most of the Old Testament. It is the time when God is going to fulfill his promises to national Israel. When it talks about having the Messiah ruling the nations with a rod of iron, that is when that is going to occur. Now, when, when you talk of a kingdom, there are three aspects of a kingdom. There is a land. So there is a place where this kingdom exists. There is also a people. And so if you have land and you have a people, the third component, you have somebody who's ruling. And we have identification for all of those for this kingdom that is coming. So, since you were already in Ezekiel, flip toward the end of the book to Ezekiel chapter 47. Yes, we are going to cover nine chapters today. But that means we're also going to have to streamline. We're not going to be able to go verse by verse. Ezekiel chapter 47, starting in verse 15. This is going to define the land. This shall be the boundary of the land. On the north side from the great sea by the way of Hethlon to the entrance of Zedad, Hamat, Berathah, Sibraim, which is between the border of Damascus and the border of Hamath, Hazar Hadakon, which is by the border of Haran. The boundary shall extend from the sea to Hazaranan, and the border of Damascus, and on the north, toward the, toward the north, is the border of Hamath. This is the north side. Now, I would expect that out of that whole list of names that we just read, you probably recognize the Great Sea. That's going to be the Mediterranean. And you recognize the name Damascus. Yes, it's the same city as Damascus, the, the capital of Syria today. And so there's a line that goes across from the Mediterranean over toward Damascus. And that line is actually about halfway up into current day Lebanon. So it's a little north of where the, the nation of Israel is today, takes up about half of Lebanon, goes over to Damascus, that's the north side. The east side, 
Verse 18, the east side from between Haran, Damascus, Gilead, and the land of Israel shall be the Jordan. From the north border to the eastern sea, you shall measure. This is the east side. So you come down, you catch the Jordan River, and you follow the Jordan River south. That's the east side. The south side toward the south shall extend from Tamar as far as the waters of Meribeth Kadesh to the brook of Egypt and to the great sea. This is the south side toward the south. And again, uh, you may understand Meribeth Kadesh is Kadesh Barnea. Uh, that is a city that you can still identify on a map. Tamar is just to the south of the Dead Sea. And so it, it comes down, angles down to the south slightly, and then heads over to the Mediterranean, a little bit south of what today would be the Gaza Strip. So it's a little bit further. It incorporates a little bit of the Sinai Peninsula. It does not include part of Israel that is in Israel today. If you go to Israel today and you come south from the Dead Sea, there's kind of like a, a pie shape that goes down and its point is at the city of Elat, which is on the Gulf of Aqaba. And that part is actually not included in the Millennial Kingdom. Verse 20, the west side shall be the Great Sea from the south border to a point opposite Lebo Hamath. This is the west side. And again, that is coming up. It's a little bit further south from where the south border of Israel is today in the uh, Sinai Peninsula. So that's the land. That's when, when you talk about the millennial kingdom, that's where they're talking about this kingdom being established. The people, that's going to be the nation of Israel that we saw in chapter 37. So all of these, that have, these bones that have been raised, life has been breathed into them. Those people are redeemed. Those are the people that are going to go into this millennial kingdom. And who's the ruler? Well, the ruler is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And for this, the best place to go is Psalm 2. So keep your finger in Ezekiel and flip back over to Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, Show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are the all who take refuge in him. And then you can go again to Revelation 20. You don't need to turn there. Revelation 20 starting in verse 4 to 6. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So basically, 
when you talk, when you hear people speak of the millennial kingdom, most often where they go to talk about the millennial kingdom is Revelation chapter 20. And that's a good place to go for talking about the kingdom. One thing that it hammers in quite readily because it says it seven times in six verses that it's going to last for a thousand years. That's how you get the name millennium, thousand years. But again, you can go back, and we're not going to do it today, but you can go all the way back, frankly, to the book of Genesis and begin to trace the promises of this kingdom. It's in Genesis. It's in the book of the law. It is in virtually every prophet in the Old Testament in some way, shape, or form talking about this kingdom. And Ezekiel commits nine chapters to this kingdom. So, if you're back in Ezekiel, go to Ezekiel chapter 40, and we're going to begin our speed run. Ezekiel is going to reveal details about this kingdom under four broad headings. One, there's a new temple. Two, there's an amended worship schedule. Three, there's an amended apportionment. And four, there are new land features. And what, what that means is there's actually a foretaste of heaven included in this kingdom. So Ezekiel chapter 40, beginning in verse 1. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th of the month, in the 14th year after the city was taken, on that same day the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me there. In the visions of God, he brought me into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain. And on it to the south, there was a structure like a city. So he brought me there. And behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze with a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand. And he was standing in the gateway. The man said to me, son of man, See with your ears, excuse me, see with your eyes, that would be interesting, wouldn't it? See with your eyes, hear with your ears, and give attention to all that I am going to show you, for you have been brought here in order to show it to you. Declare to the house of Israel all that you see. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, this is very similar to the instructions given to the Apostle John. John is basically writing as a secretary taking dictation for the book of Revelation. He doesn't add interpretation. He just writes down what he's told and what he hears. That's the same thing that Ezekiel is doing here. And it's important enough that it's, th that command is going to be repeated to him by God. So flip over a couple of pages to chapter 44, beginning in verse 4. Then he brought me by the way of the north gate to the front of the house, and I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord, and I fell on my face. The Lord said to me, Son of man, mark well. Pay attention. Set your heart on this. See with your eyes and hear with your ears all that I say to you concerning all the statutes of the house of the Lord and concerning all its laws. And mark well the entrance of the house with all exits of the sanctuary. Pay attention, Ezekiel. The things that I'm showing you, you need to pass these along to the house of Israel. You need to write these things down. Because things aren't going to be exactly as you remember them. Remember, Ezekiel is a priest. 
Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah glory that was present in Solomon's temple, Ezekiel saw it leave. He was in Babylon at the time, and so he saw it leave by a vision, but he saw it leave in Ezekiel chapter 10. He's going to get to see it return to this temple, which is in the millennial kingdom. So back over to chapter 40. It's 572 B.C. It's 14 years since the Jerusalem fell and the temple was destroyed. Solomon's temple was destroyed. And so we're told it's 14 years later. It's the first month. It's the 14th day of the month. Ezekiel has not had a dated vision at this point for 12 years. Life has been somewhat back to normal for him in that he has been getting uh, lamentations to preach against surrounding nations, but he's been able to speak. He hasn't been struck dumb unless the first words out of his mouth are, thus saith the Lord. And so things have been kind of normal now for about 12 years, and then he gets this vision. And so he's taken in a vision to a future Jerusalem. He is the immediate audience, right? He's been brought there so that he can be shown these things to then record them for the house of Israel. And so God is revealing details. He expects Ezekiel and the house of Israel to pay attention so that they may what? Obey. They're being told... Uh, a lot of people like to quote Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, and that is absolutely true. The secret things do belong to the Lord. There are some things that we are not given to know and to understand. But the verse goes on. But the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may obey the words of this law. When God reveals something to us, we are responsible to know it, we're responsible to understand it, and we're responsible to obey it. Frankly, we're responsible then to teach it. You teach it to your kids. You know it, under, you know it well enough so that you can pass it along to others. And again, not everything is going to be the same. So that gets us to the first general heading here. What's, what's Ezekiel going to be shown here? And in the first three chapters, he's going to be shown a new temple. And this new temple is something else. Now, I will admit, it is a little tedious to read chapters 40, 41, and 42. Because what you're reading is a set of verbal blueprints. Now, those of you who are architects or engineers, you're used to working with blueprints. Maybe if you're an electrician or a plumber, you're used to working with blueprints. And I have never in my life seen anybody go on to a job as a contractor and rather than getting the piece of paper that has the drawing on it, I have yet to see anybody plug in a tape recorder so that he can listen to somebody read off the dimensions for everything that's on that sheet of paper, all right? It doesn't happen. But that's what Ezekiel is doing. He's basically speaking what it is that he is seeing so that you could listen to what he's saying and create a diagram. You could create a blueprint that would show what it is that he's looking at. And in fact, if you have Bible software, you don't even have to have Bible software. You can do this online. You can go in and type in Ezekiel's temple, and they will come up with all kinds of diagrams for you to look at that here's what this thing is perceived to look like. Because again, sometimes, well, it, there's a couple of... Uh, I don't know if controversy, controversy might be too strong a word, but there's a couple of things that you got to work through. Bottom line is, this temple is 875 feet long and 875 feet wide. Now, you think about that and you go, all right, well, what does that mean? 
Well, it means this. Solomon's temple, the one that Ezekiel knew, was about two-thirds the size of a football field. Okay? So if you can imagine a football field, Solomon's temple would occupy about two-thirds of that football field. Ezekiel's temple, you can put 17 football fields inside Ezekiel's temple. So this thing is huge. It is massive. And the size of it is not all. In fact, it's, it's unusual how it's measured. The, the reed here, the rod that this angel's got is six cubits long. But these aren't everyday cubits. These are royal cubits. So a cubit, generally speaking, went from your elbow to the tip of your finger. It's about generally 18 inches. A royal cubit, though, you would add a hand breadth to that. So a royal cubit is about 21 inches. So six of those is about 10 and a half feet. So he's got, uh, this angel's got this rod to where he can go through and, and measure these and get an idea as to just what size this place is. So it's 875 feet. It's almost three football fields long. It's almost three foot field, football fields wide. And it's got three gates. There's a gate in the center on the north. There's a gate in the center on the south. And there's a gate in the center on the east. No gate on the west. So three gates. When Ezekiel sees the glory come into this temple, that glory comes in through the gate on the east. Now that is important to remember. Because, because God's glory has come in through the gate on the east, no one else comes in through the gate on the east. So the gate on the east, that gets shut. That leaves two. You got one on the north and you got one on the south. And so there is built in traffic control. If you come in from the north, you go straight through and you go out the south. You don't go out the way you came in. You come in from the south, you pass through the north. So when you have a huge building and you've got traffic control built in, what's anticipated? A lot of people. There's a lot of people going through this place. Interestingly, while the temple is so much larger, the altar inside the temple is smaller. The temple, excuse me, the altar in Solomon's temple was 20 cubits by 20 cubits, 30 by 30 feet. That's a big table. I don't know how they reached the center of it. So, I mean, you've got all these sacrifices going on here, 20 cubits by 20 cubits. The altar in Ezekiel's temple, 12 by 12. It's a lot smaller. There's a lot more people but the altar is a lot smaller. And so, perhaps sin isn't quite as much a problem in the millennial kingdom as it is in our current day. The Shekinah glory is present in Ezekiel's temple, meaning God is dwelling among them. It's interesting that when you read here, there are some furnishings that were present in Solomon's temple that are not in Ezekiel's temple. So for instance, it's got a smaller altar. There's no mention, there's no Ark of the Covenant. It's not there. There's no mention of an altar of incense. There's no mention of the golden lampstand. There's got to be something to wash the sacrifices in because it talks about that. Uh, there's multiple places where the sacrifices get washed in order to be put on the altar. But again, some of the furniture isn't there that was found in Solomon's temple. And so it's a lot bigger. In fact, it's large enough. You could fit it on Temple Mount as Temple Mount is configured today. 
but you'd never get the wall that surrounds the temple complex on Temple Mount. The wall that goes around all of that complex is 500 reeds long. So 500 times 10 and a half feet, now you're over, you know, you're 5,200 and something feet long on all four sides. Uh, there's 5,280 feet in a mile. So the wall that's surrounding all of this is a mile on each side. That's actually bigger than the old city of Jerusalem is. And so there's, uh, there's all kinds of things. And remember that during the tribulation, especially in the last part of it, there's all kinds of seismic events. There's all kinds of cosmic events that are going on. And so there's a lot of things that are changing in the landscape. When Jesus returns, his foot touches down on the Mount of Olives and the Mount of Olives splits. So, and there creates a highway running east-west, which we're going to run into that here in a few minutes too. So again, huge temple, different than the temple that he was familiar with. Second, there's an amended worship schedule. Satan's bound, but in the millennial kingdom, there's still sin and there's still death. Now we know that. Uh, if you look over at chapter 44, verse 25, it, uh, in that section there, they're talking about ordinances for the Levitical priests. And in verse 25, they shall not go to a dead person to defile themselves. However, for father, for mother, for son, for daughter, for brother, or, a or for a sister who has not had a husband, they may defile themselves. You'll remember that in the Old Testament, um, going all the way back to the law of Moses, um, touching, an, uh, touching a dead body rendered you ceremonially unclean. So there is still death. If, there's, you know, if there was no death in the millennial kingdom, you couldn't be able to go near a dead body, right? So kind of got to have one if you got the other. There's still sin because there are sin offerings. There are sin offerings offered every morning, which is different because under the law in Leviticus, those offerings, the sin offerings, the general ones were offered, the burnt offerings were offered morning and evening. In the millennial kingdom, they're only offered in the morning. There were six types of sacrifices in Ezekiel's day. You had burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings, and drink offerings. And you will have every one of those in the millennial kingdom. They're all referenced. And so all of those are still present. So you're still having to deal with sin. Which kind of gives rise to a question now, doesn't it? And this is the big hang-up, frankly, for most Christians reading this part of Ezekiel. Wait a minute. Jesus died on the cross. He paid for all sin. He suffered the consequences. He suffered the wrath that was rightly due for that sin for all who come. In, in faith, in repentance and faith. And all these people that go into this kingdom are redeemed. So why are they reverting to animal sacrifices? And that's a legitimate question. Why is that? We know from Hebrews chapter 10, those, those sacrifices weren't effective. The, the blood of bulls and goats and rams and lambs never satisfied sin. They never did it back in the book of the law. They didn't do it in the tabernacle. They didn't do it in the temple. They just, they didn't do it. That's why Jesus had to die. So why go back to these animal sacrifices? And there's probably two answers to that. Answer number one it emphasizes that sin requires death. Keep your finger in Ezekiel and go back to Leviticus chapter 1. 
Leviticus 1, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it, a male without defect, he shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. The offering of that animal was a, that animal was being a substitute for him. What he did warranted death. And a death was going to occur. That animal was dying in his place. And so you have an understanding here that my sin, yes, my sin is covered by the blood of Christ, but it still has consequences. And I'm not talking about you know, eternal consequences. You're not suffering wrath, all right? But the point is sin is costly. It cost Jesus his life. Jesus had to die to atone for my sin. And sin in the millennial kingdom still carries a cross. Death is still having to occur. So it's looking back. In, under the law of Moses, in the tabernacle or in the temple, that, look, that sacrifice looked forward. It looked forward to how it would be fulfilled in Jesus on the cross. Now it's looking backward. It's going back and recognizing Jesus covered this, but it, it required his blood. And so one is the reminder that death is required for sin. And you know, there's another. And frankly, I wonder how it would impact us if we were subject to this requirement. You're having to take your animal, your grain, your drink, and offer it. You can't use it for whatever else you would use it for. You can't use it for bartering. You can't use it for your own food, your own consumption. It's basically a fine that's being paid because of your sin. I wonder, do you ever think about this? You've heard of the term cheap grace? Has anybody heard that term? Some of you haven't. Okay, here's the idea of cheap grace. My sin's paid for. It's already paid for. And all of my sins are paid for. Past, present, sins I haven't even thought about yet. That sin has been covered by the blood of Christ. And since my sin has been paid for, what's the big deal then if I commit it? Now there's a term for that if that becomes consistent. If you look in the book of Jude, that would be called licentiousness. The idea that I have a license to sin, and frankly, if I come to the point where I think I have a license to sin, I'm not redeemed. Redeemed people do not think that way. And so that would be bad evidence if I'm examining my own heart. But the point being is that because my sin is paid for, perhaps I'm not as careful as I ought to be. And I wonder if I might be a little more careful if when I stepped out of line, it cost me. Why is it that nobody speeds in front of a CHP officer? Why is it that people normally do not shoplift in front of a deputy sheriff? Now, I hear laughs, but the fact of the matter is you don't do it because you're going to get caught. The cop is right there. He doesn't even have to work hard to catch you. And there's going to be consequences for my action. If I'm speeding, 
it's going to cost me money. If I'm shoplifting, it's going to cost me a reputation. It's going to cost me attorney fees. It's going to, there's all kinds of things there that come into play. So again, it just makes me wonder if this were instituted in our day, how that would affect our behavior. So the sacrifices, they're all present. There was something else that, that characterized Israel. Festivals, celebrations, memorials. There were six in the Law of Moses. There was the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Tabernacles, and the Day of Atonement. In the Millennial Kingdom, there are four, and one of them is brand new. There is a New Year's festival. There's the celebration of Passover. There's the celebration of unleavened bread and the Feast of Tabernacles. No mention of Pentecost. No mention of the Feast of Trumpets. No mention of the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was the single most important day in the Jewish year. Tenth day of the seventh month. Not there. There's no mention of it. Does atonement need to be made for those in the millennial kingdom? You already have the blood of Christ. And if you're redeemed, you have that. And so it seems, now, the New Year's festival, that stresses the holiness of the temple. That's a time when the temple is ceremonially uh, cleansed with blood from a sacrifice. And so there is a stress for holiness there. The others are memorials. What was the reason for celebrating Passover? Well, that's remembering the deliverance from Egypt, right? Unleavened bread is related to that, the deliverance from Egypt. The Feast of Tabernacles, what's that remembering? Wandering in the desert, wandering in the wilderness while you're escaping from Egypt and on your way over here to the Promised Land. And so they're memorials. So again, there's differences in the festivals. And we already talked about the morning sacrifice. There's no evening sacrifice. The other thing about offerings in the Millennial Kingdom, they tend to be a little more abundant. So whereas you might have had a lamb for this, well, that's been upgraded. Now we're going to do a bull. There, or, you know, in this case, we might have done X number of animals in the Millennial Kingdom. Eh, it's going to be maybe a little more than that. And so again, things are different. So for Ezekiel, being a priest, Ezekiel would be very familiar with sacrifices and with the temple. So again, it's, you can't go on memory. You need to go on what is being done now. So you've got a new temple. You've got an amended worship schedule. Third, you have an amended apportionment. If you look at a current map, if you look at a map in the back of your Bible about how the land was distributed for the 12 tribes of Israel, you would find that there are, there's kind of scattered, they're very irregularly shaped, and in fact, if you go, if you look in the southern kingdom, uh, in you, you have Judah, and right in the middle of Judah, there's an island. So Judah is the ocean, and Simeon is the island in the middle of that ocean. Or if you want to make it a donut and a hole, you got the same thing. But the idea there is you've got Simeon showing up in the middle of Judah. Well, how does this work, by the way, when the northern kingdom separates from the southern kingdom, and Simeon is very far in the south? I guess they move north, because that's where their inheritance was. That's not distributed the same way in the Millennial Kingdom. The temple and the holy city, that's right in the middle. And then the king, the prince, he's got area right there. There's some holy area right there, and you've got the areas for the Levites right there around the temple. The Levites aren't scattered through the whole country anymore. Reduces their commute time to get to work at the temple. And so you've got that in the center, and then you start at the north, and there's a strip that goes straight across, nice, straight, lines and boom Dan and all these others going down you've got Judah right on the north of the 
of the holy area. You've got Benjamin right on the south, and then it goes down again. So the, the inheritance map looks entirely different. Laws of inheritance are slightly different too. The prince, who's going to be a representative of the line of David, he can gift property to family, and that becomes theirs. If he gifts it to somebody who's not family, that only lasts for six years because in the seventh year, it comes back. So you still have the laws of redemption that are applying. And so it doesn't look anything like, in fact, I've never been able to find a color-coded map for the millennial kingdom like you can find in the back of your Bible for the way things were divvied up in the time of Joshua what it would look like, it would look like a rainbow going down the line of Israel because they would be nice, straight lines going down. So the apportionment is different. And then last, the foretaste of heaven. Turn to Ezekiel 47. I'm going to read to you two other verses. This is from Revelation 22. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. Now, in, remember that Revelation 22 is after the new heaven and the new earth. That is the eternal state. And so that is something that's going to be that way and it's going to be that way forever. The other is in the book of Zechariah, chapter 14. Zechariah 14, 8. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. So, now if you're in Ezekiel 47, we'll start in verse 1. Then he brought me back to the door of the house, and behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house toward the east, for the house faced east. And the water was flowing down from under, from the right side of the house, from the south of the altar. He brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside of the outer gate by way of the gate that faces east. Remember, Ezekiel can't go through the east gate because God came through there, so it's shut. He's got to walk around. And he gets over there, and behold, water was trickling from the south side. When the man went toward the east with a line in his hand, he measured a 1,000 cubits, 1,500 feet, 500 yards, a little over a quarter mile, water reaching the ankles. Again he measured a thousand and led me through the water, water reaching the knees. Again he measured a thousand and led me through the water, water reaching the loins. Again he measured a thousand and it was a river I could not ford, for the water had risen enough water to swim in, a river that could not be forded. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me back to the bank of the river. Now when I had returned, behold, on the bank of the river, there were very many trees on one side and on the other. Then he said to me, these waters go out toward the eastern region and go down into the Arabah. The Arabah was the wilderness. It's a desert. Then they go toward the sea, being made to flow into the sea, and the waters of the sea become fresh. When he's referring to the sea there, he's talking about the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea, whose water is six times more alkaline, it's six times more salty than ocean water. It will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live. You know, you can go in the Dead Sea and float. The water is so salty, it's almost impossible to drown. I think the only way you could drown is if you were floating face down because you sure can't stay submerged. You just pop up to the top. 
and there will be very many fish. For these waters go there, and the others become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. And it will come about that fishermen will stand beside it. From Engedi to Enaglam, there will be a place for the spreading of nets. Their fish will be according to their kinds, like the fish of the Great Sea, the Mediterranean, very many. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Got to have salt from somewhere. By the river on its bank, on the side and on the other, will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear every month because their water flows from the sanctuary and their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. If you go back to Revelation 22, what do you find on both sides of the, on the banks on both sides of the river of the water of life? You find the tree of life and it bears its fruit every month and its fruits for food and its leaves are for the healing of the nations. Now these trees are not the tree of life. Remember, Adam and Eve got kicked out of the Garden of Eden so that they wouldn't eat from the tree of life and live forever in their condemned state. So this isn't the tree of life, but again, it's a shadow. It's a foretaste of that which is to come. And so here you have a kingdom where you have no devil, you still have people with sin natures. Sin is not as rampant. We didn't read in some of the other places where uh, if you die at the age of 100, you're considered an infant. Incredibly long time lifespans. And so this is the kingdom that is promised for the people of Israel. So, why does that matter to us? First off, God is faithful. When he makes a promise, he keeps it. When you look at the nation of Israel and how they, their rejection of Jesus, their hatred and persecution of the gospel, their persecution of Christians in the early church, when you see that and you consider the hard-heartedness that they had toward the gospel, enough that they were broken off, some of them, temporarily so that the Gentiles could be grafted in. You and I are the fruit of that grafting, that grafting came about because of their disobedience. And the God who broke them off says that he is also able to graft them back. That's Romans 9 to 11. And so God is faithful to his promises. And again, if God will be faithful to them, then I can count on God being faithful to me. So that when God says, I will never, never leave you, and I will never, never, never forsake you, I will not cast you aside, I will not lose you through the cracks. I can believe that. When I sin and I come to him for the umpteenth time about this one, I can trust that if I confess my sin, he is faithful and just to forgive me of that sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And so again, God honors his word. He honors his promises. And that I can take to the bank. So that should embolden my faith. And so if you're here today and you are redeemed, you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you're a, you're a son or a daughter of God, then this should give us great encouragement and great boldness 
in going forth and acting on the things that God has commanded us to do or not to do. That should give us great courage and great confidence. When things are difficult, we, should, we need to realize that we can take God at his word. So when God says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness, I trust that. So it gives me courage. It gives me perseverance to keep my shoulder under the load and to keep moving, to keep obeying and not to give up. When God's word says, do not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we don't faint, if we don't give up. And so again, the mark of a Christian is perseverance and faith. Those are the kinds of things that encourage our perseverance and our faith. If you're here today and you do not know Christ, you are at war with God. That's not the scary part. The scary part is God is at war with you. If you stand before God as judge, you'll be condemned. You're going to lose. And they don't have to be huge sins. We're the ones who categorize those as big ones and little ones, right? What got Adam and Eve kicked out of the Garden of Eden? Did Adam murder Eve? Did he sexually assault her? They ate a piece of fruit. They disobeyed the one command God had given them. You and I would look at that and go, you've got to be kidding, right? When the law of Moses comes down, there's a guy out collecting sticks on the Sabbath day. You're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath day. He's gathering sticks. The case goes to Moses. Moses takes it to God. How do we enforce the law in this case? And what was God's instruction? Stone him. He's worthy of death because he has taken me lightly. He has not worshipped me as he should. He has not held me holy as he should. He was picking up sticks on a day when he wasn't supposed to. God is holy. And there's not one of us in here that is going to be able to say somehow, I'm okay, I'm clean, I don't have any pollution, I'm not stained in any way, shape, or form by sin. God's moral law, his standard, is moral perfection. And there's not one of us that gets out of infancy unscathed by that one. And so again, if you don't know Christ, the time to turn is today. Today you have. Right now you have. You don't know. You do not know when you're going to stand before God. And by that time, it is too late. That's why Paul says, today is the acceptable day. Now is the acceptable time. Let's pray. Music team, come on up if you would. Father, I am so looking forward to being able to be in this kingdom, to be able to see the Lord Jesus ruling the nations, to be able to see a time when there is no devil, when sin is so much more restricted. Jesus is ruling and That's the best kingdom we're ever going to be able to see short of heaven itself. And yet, Lord, there are so many who will not be there. And so I pray that you would help us to be busy, that you would help us to be active in proclaiming your word, that we would tell those that we know 
of the horror of the lake of fire. That's what awaits the unredeemed and the incredible blessings now and in eternity of knowing you and obeying you. And so, Father, be at work in our hearts that we would demonstrate our adoration for you in worship, not just here, but on a daily, hour-by-hour basis. And that we would demonstrate our faithfulness to you with devotion and obedience. In Christ's name, amen. Now may the, now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in, that, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. God bless you all.